Revelation chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1034. Some of you know that Colby Jones has been writing and studying in Revelation for quite some time, and I reached out to him last week and said, hey, I'm preaching through Revelation 11 uh, in a couple weeks, and I just got a text back that said LOL. So, <laughs> thank you, Colby. Uh, uh, actually, he was a uh, big help. He sent me a few th- resources of his own that he's been writing, and they were, they were very useful. Uh, chapter 11 is uh, another challenging chapter to interpret. Some have said it's the most difficult in Revelation. I might agree, but uh, I still have got 11 more to go, so we'll see. Uh, some details may puzzle us, but I think the main point will, will stand out, especially as we get some help from uh, numerous uh, Old Testament passages. Uh, those passages will be up on the screen. I won't have time to dig into each one of them. Um, so write them down and read them at home uh, to help you understand this book. Uh, remember that chapter 11 belongs to a pause in John's uh, narrative. He, he did this once in chapter 7 uh, before Jesus broke the, the sixth seal, right? I mean, the seventh seal, we get this, this pause between the sixth and, and seventh seals uh, where John kind of zooms out for a minute and, and tells the story of the church in kind of one sitting and, 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 and uh, does that to reassure them in tribulation. And so also here, before the final trumpet, John has paused to reassure us. And some of that reassurance came with chapter 10. John's vision of the mighty angel reassured us uh, that Jesus has all dominion and God's saving purpose will prevail. Uh, At the same time, we learn that God's saving purpose includes a bitter tribulation, okay? And so chapter 11 is going to develop that bitter tribulation uh, further. For a time, the church will suffer greatly for its powerful witness. Uh, Nevertheless, God will vindicate His people. That's, That's the main point of chapter 11. Let's read verses... 1 to 14, and then make some observations. Uh, Starting in verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, then this is how he is doomed to be killed. They will have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, 
The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a voice, a loud voice from heaven, saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So occasionally we sing these words. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. To Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. Now Christians from all over will sing that song and yet none of us literally stands at the Jordan River, right? We've borrowed some Old Testament imagery to depict our current state You know, like Israel, we are passing through a a wilderness on our way to the true and greater promised land in the new heaven and new earth. Now, we get that way of talking from the way John and the other apostles borrow from the Old Testament. Uh, In chapter 7, he borrowed uh, the sealing of God's faithful in Ezekiel. Right? He, he borrowed the census of God's people in Numbers. He borrowed the Feast of Booths in Exodus. And he kind of brings them all together in a, in a little in story form to describe the, the, the church. To depict the church as this mighty army that God preserves through the wilderness of tribulation on their way to the promised land. Well, in chapter 11, the one we're, we're in today, John borrows more images more images to to picture or to to typify our present mission as a church. Now, to say that John pictures our present mission means I'm approaching chapter 11 a particular way. Uh, You likely notice that verses 2 and 3 describe an interval of time, 42 months uh, or 1,260 years. Days. Elsewhere, John uses time, times, and half a time. Uh, they all mean the same interval, three and a half years. The question is, what does this interval represent? Uh, should it be taken as a literal three and a half years, or is it a symbol like most other numbers in Revelation? Well, the language comes from Daniel 7, verse 25... And Daniel 12, verse 7, both are prophecies that describe an interval when God's people suffer intense persecution from from enemy nations, but are then vindicated by God. 
It describes an interval when God's people suffer intense persecution from from enemy nations but are then vindicated by God. Now, some will take these prophecies from Daniel and push, uh, and push, push this intense persecution of God's people to the very end of history. Uh, so they would take the three and a half years literally and then limit them to the final three and a half years of a great tribulation that uh, will end history as we know it. I take a different approach uh, and have found great help from chapter 12 of Revelation verses 5 and 6. Um, If you just glance over there to the next chapter with me, verses 5 and 6, John indicates when the 1,260 days begin. He's describing Satan's attempt to conquer Jesus. Verse 5 then says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. Now, when was Jesus caught up to God and to his throne? It happened at his ascension, his exaltation. That's when the 1,260 days began. And then over in chapter 12, verses 14 to 17, we see this same interval represented as time, times, and half a time. And it is seen as the days that began when God ousted Satan from heaven and Satan started warring against the church on earth. Again, that started at Jesus' ascension, his exaltation. In other words, I don't think John uses 1,260 days literally. He is using it symbolically. It represents the present age, which is a time when God's people suffer tribulation and intense persecution from enemies. It begins with Jesus' ascension and Satan ousted from heaven, and it ends with Jesus' return and Satan vanquished forever. So all that to kind of help you understand how I'm approaching chapter 11. I see chapter 11 portraying our present experience in tribulation as well as our future vindication. So we need to think of chapter 11 more like a parable that uses Old Testament imagery to kind of tell the the story of our mission in kind of one sitting. He's kind of summarizing This is what the mission of the church looks like as a whole. And then when we get to chapters 13 to 16, he'll kind of fill in some more details for us. So, the first way that John tells the story of our mission here is with an embattled city in verses 1 to 2. An embattled city. Uh, And from this we learn that the church is safe in God's presence, though temporarily trampled. The church is safe in God's presence, though temporarily trampled. John's given a measuring rod in verse 1. John must rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. That comes from Ezekiel chapter 40 and Zechariah 2. Uh, Both prophecies are given, you'll, you'll notice this about all the prophecies we actually deal with today, they're, they're all given to Israel in a time where nations are oppressing them. All right, that's, that's important. 
But the prophecy comes at a time when enemy nations have destroyed the temple. They have oppressed God's people. But in those awful trials, God sends a vision of of angels who are measuring a new temple. And this measuring of a new temple is a sign of hope. A new day was coming when God would restore the people's security in his presence forever. Now, something similar occurs in Revelation 11, but there's more to the picture. Uh, God also asks John to measure the altar and those who worship there. Now, the last time we heard about the altar, the martyrs prayed for justice under the altar. And so it's depicting Christian worship there as, uh, as, as those who, who give their lives to the Lord, even to the point of death. And so by measuring these worshipers, these followers of Jesus, God promises not only to restore His people's security in the future, like those Old Testament prophecies indicated, but even now, John is saying, even right now, the Christian belongs to God's temple and is safe in God's presence. Now, taken that way, I don't see this measuring to anticipate a rebuilt earthly temple in Israel. At some future time, I think John's gospel in Hebrews would find that to be a serious regression in God's saving plan. Jesus and all united to him are the new and better temple. But also, we're in a book that views Christians as pillars in God's temple. We're in a book that views Christians as lampstands in God's temple. We're also in a chapter that explicitly tells us in verse 8 that he's speaking symbolically. So when I put these things together, I see the temple in verse 2 is portraying Christians who already dwell with God in safety, uh, much like the prophets did. John is using old covenant imagery to portray the better new covenant realities. We need to see this picture as a church. We need to see this picture of our security in God's presence... Because John also goes on to say we live in a time of trampling by the nations. So verse 2 forbids John from measuring the court outside. Why? Well, it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months, that's the time frame again. So I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this as from Jesus' ascension to his return, enemies are oppressing The church, we are kind of in an embattled city, right? John compares our current state to an embattled city. And I want to zoom out for a minute and explain it this way. Revelation is a story about two cities. Two. That would be four. Two cities. Uh, Revelation is a story about two cities. Um, On the one hand, you have the holy city, which he mentions here. And the holy city is God's city. We read more about the complete state of the God city in the New Jerusalem, chapters 21 and 22. Uh, so we have God's city, and then, you have, and then you have the great city. And the great city, he calls Sodom and Egypt, down in verse 8. Uh, the great city later in chapters 16, 17, and 18 is called Babylon. So this great city can be called Sodom and Egypt and Babylon, which are all enemies of God. 
uh, in, and God's people in the Old Testament. So the great city is the beast city. It's the rebellious city. So you have the holy city, God's city, and you have the beast city, the, the rebellious city in Revelation. Those are your two cities. Before the end of time, so before the new Jerusalem is complete uh, and wholly secure, what, what John is saying is that there is going to be a time when the beast city wars against God's city. When the beast city attempts to trample God's city and destroy God's people in it. Now, that's under God's control. Notice the passive verb. The city is given over. This is John's way of saying the Lord's still in control. God is sovereign over this trampling. God also limits how long it's going to last, 1,260 days. Yet, for as long as it lasts, the message here is that the Christian need not worry. Even in our suffering, nothing will shake us from dwelling in God's presence. If you worship Jesus and you give your life to His service, God has already measured you and included you in His dwelling place and nothing can separate you from that. Nothing can take you away from from His dwelling place. That's the point here. Here's another way John tells the story of our mission. The church is bold in witness, though temporarily opposed... The church is bold in witness, though temporarily opposed. Verse 3 introduces two witnesses. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. There's that interval again. Now, some read this as two individuals raised up in the final days, uh, just preceding Christ's return. Sometimes they identify them as Moses and Elijah, returned from the dead. I take a different approach, all right, in part because of how I view these 1,260 days. From what I laid out earlier, the ministry of these witnesses lasts from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return. Same interval of time. Also, when when John identifies the two prophets in verses 4 to 6, the imagery about Moses and Elijah... It's not like saying there will be a Moses guy and an Elijah guy. No, the images of both of the prof, uh, of both Moses and Elijah apply to both prophets in addition to Jeremiah and Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel from Zechariah's prophecy. So, so his point isn't to identify which two Old Testament witnesses are going to return... Rather, like he did in chapter 7, John is just mounting up numerous uh, Old Testament witnesses to paint a picture of what our witness is like. And so I take the two witnesses to represent the church. The law required the testimony of two witnesses before rendering judgment. That's why we find two witnesses here before God renders judgment. John also calls them two lampstands in verse 4. In chapter 1, verse 20 of Revelation, identified the church as what? Lampstands. He also mentions two olive trees. Uh, That's from Zechariah chapter 4, especially verses 11 to 14. Uh, Olives had to do with anointing oil. And so we're looking at uh, 
the, the two olive trees standing for the two anointed ones. And in, and in Zechariah's prophecy, that was Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who's kind of the stand-in king in David's line. In Zechariah's prophecy, what we're seeing is a picture of God anointing priestly and kingly figures to mediate the blessings of God's Spirit in a day of hostility from pagan nations. God anointed priestly and kingly figures to mediate the blessings of God's Spirit in a day of hostility from pagan nations. And John is taking that picture and saying that through your union with Jesus, that's who you are. You are a priestly and kingly people who are set apart to mediate the blessings of God's Spirit in a world that is hostile to Jesus. He also includes imagery from Jeremiah, verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. That comes from Jeremiah 5.14. The Lord says, Behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people, he's talking about the, the, the false ones in Israel, this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Read the rest of Jeremiah. He ain't breathing no fire, <laughs> literally, from his mouth. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. The same way a sword coming from Jesus' mouth is a metaphor when he speaks his word of judgment. So also here, Jeremiah delivers words of, delivered words of judgment. The false... Uh, and it's interesting in... Chapter 5, verse 13 of Jeremiah, where he says, The false prophet's words, they're but wind. But Jeremiah, my words in your mouth are like fire. And so the false prophet's words are nothing. They're not accomplishing anything. Jeremiah's words, on the other hand, are, will, will powerfully achieve judgment on the wicked. Uh, John also pulls from Elijah's ministry. They have the power to shut the sky. He says that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. You can find this in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Elijah uh, was in a face-off with Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. God cursed the land by shutting up the skies, but the way he did it is important. He did it through the message of Elijah, and through, James tells us, the prayers of Elijah. And so, so, so we see here God working through the message and the prayers of Elijah. Elijah was like a covenant enforcer as he delivered God's word, and God worked powerfully through his words and prayers in the face of false leaders and false prophets. Moses gets included. Verse 6, they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. A while back I mentioned how Exodus 12 portrays those plagues on Egypt, that it were not just judgments uh, on the people, they were God's judgments on the people's gods, the false gods of, 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 of Egypt. 
And so when Moses spoke God's word, there's a couple of things happening. When you read the Exodus account, when Moses speaks God's words, he's not only bringing judgment on the false gods of Egypt, he's also bringing deliverance for the people who are true to Yahweh. So God worked through Moses' witness to accomplish two things. To accomplish judgment on the false gods and in the uh, and, and salvation for his, his people. Now, if you weave all those images and the stories of those prophets together, how does John want you to see yourself? How does John want you to see the church as they are witnesses during the tribulation? He well, like, like Joshua and Zerubbabel and Jeremiah and Elijah and Moses, we are living in a time of, a tense, of intense opposition from oppressive nations and false prophets and false gods. And yet God has made us, this is how he wants you to view yourself, he, he has made you a royal, royal and priestly people anointed by his spirit to proclaim his truth. God has made you witnesses And through your words, he will defeat false gods and save those who identify with Jesus. So your witness is no small thing. Like he used the prophets before, he will also use your witness to accomplish his will in judgment and salvation. And part of that is bringing the plagues of this book to bear on people's lives. And telling them to find their hope in the Lamb. Now, as we learned from verse 5, when you do that, uh, there will be those who seek to harm you. Uh, Jeremiah, Elijah, Moses, these guys we've mentioned, I mean, none of them had easy ministries. When, when When you don't compromise your witness before God... The world hates you. And that's where John goes next in verses 7 to 10. Uh, In telling the story of our mission, we lastly see that the church is vindicated in resurrection, though temporarily conquered. The church is vindicated in resurrection, though temporarily conquered. Verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit... You hear more about him in chapter 13... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where their Lord was crucified. He's talking about Jerusalem, but, but he calls it Sodom and Egypt. What's going on? Well, he's pointing out that when Jerusalem crucified Jesus, the people showed their true colors. They showed what city they really belonged to. They proved to have more in common with God's enemies. Sodom and Egypt are the kinds of cities that hated God's ways and hated God's people. You see, the Spirit of Christ did not have their allegiance. It was the spirit of Antichrist that had their allegiance. 
the beast was their master. The great city, as John calls it, isn't one that you can pinpoint on a map right now. He is describing, again, he's describing the world cosmically in terms of two cities. And so, and so he's, this city, the great city, represents all who hate Jesus and hate Jesus' followers. And he continues in the parable in verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so it's looking just like it did when Jesus was crucified... Like, like evil has won the day, darkness has, has snuffed out the light, but then comes verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So we're, we're seeing this picture of where the church will experience great defeat in some ways. The beast kingdom will persecute them and, and kill them. But in the same way that God vindicated Jesus, God will vindicate His church. Much of the language in verse 11 comes from Ezekiel 37, when God's Spirit resurrects God's people, and so also God is going to resurrect His church. It also gives pictures here of God judging our enemies. That's the earthquake in verse 13, and we'll get to flesh this out more when we get to the the, uh, seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl, uh, where we see this, I think, the same earthquake at the end. Uh, some, some people uh, see the, the response in verse 13 where they, they give glory to God. They kind of see this as a, a kind of a forced allegiance. Um, so they don't glorify God from this, from this heartfelt sorrow and, uh, but utter dread. On the other hand, if you read the other three places where this language of giving glory to God happens in Revelation, it seems to be speaking of repentance each time. Um, So the point here may simply be that whenever God vindicates the church's witness, it will lead to the judgment of some and the repentance of others who give God glory. In other words... Even if we're killed for following Jesus, our witness will achieve what God intends for it. The word we spoke will result in judgment on some and repentance for others. That's my best attempt to make sense of chapter 11 for us. Now, where then does, does this portrait of the church's mission leave us? How should it affect us? Uh, One, John's polarizing vision forces us to evaluate our allegiances. 
John's polarizing vision forces us to evaluate our, our allegiance. I mean, doesn't this story that he's telling seem so extreme? <laughs> Many of us don't go to work and feel the nations trampling us down. Right? Some, some bad things happen, sure. But, but in general, I mean, people aren't as bad as they could be. We seem to get along with the non-Christian world okay. But it's in that environment that our allegiances to Jesus often go unquestioned and unchallenged. And what Revelation does is it kind of rips the veil off of that situation and it forces us to see the world as it really is. There really are only two cities. And either you're in one and you worship Jesus, or you're in the other and you hate Jesus and you are working to overthrow his kingdom. If you're not a Christian, that should force you to ask, do I belong to God's city? Or do I belong to the beast's city? Perhaps you look at the church and you find it weak. Maybe you listen to popular atheists mock Christianity and you find yourself laughing along with them. Maybe you watch Christians scatter when persecution hits and you think the church will fall. But this vision is telling the whole story. In the end, God's city prevails. In the end, God vindicates His church. So don't be deceived by the temporary victories of the beast. Give yourself to the worship of Jesus in His city. Through the cross, Jesus has already conquered. And He has made a way for you to enter that city through faith. Turn and give your allegiance to Jesus. If you are a Christian, I think we're also forced to check our allegiances here. Maybe we ask ourselves, like I asked myself this week, why don't I experience much conflict for Jesus' sake? Is it because I'm living for the same city as the rebels? Why do few people take offense at my Christianity? Is it because I've made too many compromises in my witness? I think Jesus is vi- the, 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 the vision that Jesus gives to John forces us to really check ourselves at the most fundamental level to make sure my allegiance has to belong to Jesus. My, my, my citizenship is in heaven in a, in, a, in a new and greater city. When Jesus has our total allegiance... Don't be surprised by intense opposition. Don't be surprised by intense opposition. That's another takeaway. We live in a pretty affluent context where being comfortable is the norm. We also live in a country whose founding principles at some points overlap with Christian morality and and that contributes to relatively peaceful communities. We ought to give thanks and not take that for granted. 
At the same time, we can become so accustomed to this more comfortable setting that we act surprised when anything disturbs it. It catches us off guard. But persecution shouldn't surprise us. Chapter 11 reveals that it's the norm. The nations seek to trample the church until Jesus returns. You need to know that so that you don't give up at the first whiff of hardships. This is Christianity 101. This is basic discipleship. Uh, as Ben quoted Bonhoeffer a while back, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Think also of the instructions that 1 Peter 4.12 gives us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Did you, did you notice the parallels between the two witnesses in Christ's life? Both are faithful in their testimony. Both are uh, hated by the world. Both suffer and die. Both rise from the dead. You see, these faithful witnesses follow in the footsteps of Jesus And that means intense opposition from the world. But it also means that when we share in Christ's sufferings, we will also share in His glory. Also, rest assured that God has secured you. If you belong to His worshipers, then He has measured you for protection. There's nothing uh, in the persecution that is going to strip you from God's presence. We're reminded of this truth when we read testimonies from the persecuted church. Right? And, And we... And we hear them talk about how even in the worst persecution, how the Lord was with them in the, in the prison cell. And, and, and some of them, I remember Richard Wormbrand talking about some of his sweetest moments with Jesus were in the prison cell. We hear testimonies of how God was with them in prison and with them during the lonely nights of... Uh, with them before the courts. He will never leave you or forsake you. I think it's John Patton's testimony where cannibals are looking for him in the night and he's spending the night in a tree and how the Lord reminded him in that tree while cannibals are looking for him uh, the, the promise of Jesus in Matthew 28, I will be with you. To the end. All right, let that truth then give you further confidence to challenge others with the claims of God. Challenge others with the claims of God. When opposition intensifies, you might be tempted to hide, right? You might be tempted to, to retreat, to stay quiet when you should have spoken. The other temptation is to make compromises with with the world. I mean, didn't we observe this in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation? In in this context, some in Pergamum were making compromises with the teachings of Balaam. Others in Thyatira were tolerating that woman Jezebel, following her into idolatry. I find this very interesting 
that when John portrays the two witnesses, he chooses a prophet that challenged Jezebel. Right after, can you imagine the, 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 the guy that gets to read this before the church? And he says, you're flirting with Jezebel. And then he brings up a prophet who challenged Jezebel as a way of saying, are you compromising with Jezebel or are you being faithful like Elijah? There's only one that I will vindicate and that is the one that goes the way of Elijah went, right? Jesus had rebuked several churches for being weak in their witness, for compromising with the world. We ought to look like the Spirit-filled ministry of Joshua and Zerubbabel. We ought to look like Jeremiah and Elijah who were faithful to God in the face of false prophets and false gods. I think a great test is before us. There is intense pressure on Christians to compromise. Compromise on abortion, for example. I got an email from the Pregnancy Help Center uh, yesterday asking for prayer because abortion advocates have planned a night of destruction against pro-life pregnancy centers. You don't agree with us? We'll burn it down. So they're putting pressure on people to change their, their minds. There is also intense pressure on you to compromise on homosexuality and gender. The pressure comes with slander campaigns and companies forcing employees to sign statements about pronouns or you're fired. Others flip the script on morality, calling good evil and evil good, such that now you're the bad guy for protecting children from gender reassignment surgery. Others are pressuring churches to compromise on women being pastors. Others compromise on pastoral integrity to save face. Others compromise on the exclusive claims of Jesus as the only way for salvation. So when it comes to the claims of God in Scripture, this vision reminds the church to stay faithful. We must not cower or compromise, but challenge others with the claims of God, no matter how unpopular it may sound. We do this not with swagger. We do this with the spirit of those in Scripture who wore sackcloth. Did you see... They will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. You don't go into a city with your thumb and your spenders, suspenders dressed in sackcloth. You come brokenhearted and heavy and sorrowful. You come pleading for repentance. Also, we don't go with this air of superiority and triumphalism. I mean, think of the ministries of Moses and Elijah. I think we could all go back and read those stories and say, yeah, he was pretty weak. Here and here. Elijah ran away from Jezebel at one point after he called down fire from heaven. (laughs) Challenge, I'm gone, see ya. Like, These are the kinds of of, of people that the Lord used mightily, right? Why? Because they chose faithfulness. So we don't go with 
this triumphalistic spirit, we go weak. And we choose faithfulness to the Lord. And when we do that, the Lord will use our words mightily to bring conviction about judgment and to bring, and to bring repentance to others. And then finally, be patient. Your vindication will come. Be patient. Your vindication will come. Your story does not end in death. Your story does not end in death, just like our Lord's story did not end in death. When we take up our cross and follow Him, our story ends with resurrection hope. Our story ends with God raising us from death with new bodies in His glorified city forever. How can we be so sure? Because Jesus our Lord has gone before us. God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says, as the first fruits, meaning there's more fruit coming. Right? If He's already there, there's more fruit coming from the harvest. So set your hope there, beloved, and let's feast on that truth further in coming to the Lord's Supper.